Our series is Illusions. We've been talking about how that if you go to a magic show or you're watching an illusionist, it will seem, it will look, it will sound like things are true when they're not true. And it's fun and it's okay if you pay for a magic show, but it's something else when you're trying to prosecute your life and you deal with the person whom the Bible calls your enemy, Satan, and he makes you think that things are true when they're not true. I think when we look at our world today, we see so many people that are very smart, they're intelligent, they're gifted, they're credentialed, they're educated, and yet they wind up believing the most ridiculous things. And the Bible tells us that doesn't happen by accident. We have a God who loves us, and we have an enemy who hates us. The thing I want to talk about today, I think, is one of the biggest illusions that Satan pulls on people. When you think about Satan's names in the Bible, in the Old Testament he's called Lucifer. That was his name given to him as an angel when he was created. Uh, we, we've already mentioned the term or the name Satan, but sometimes he is called the devil. And I want to talk about that for a moment. The word devil means accuser. In the book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And so I want you to understand that one of the key things that Satan is going to do to pull tricks on you is to accuse you. Now, Let's start with this. We all do things that are wrong. And wherever you fall in the spectrum, whether you're a committed Christ follower or if you're someone here and you're a non-theist here today, the one thing I've discovered from talking to all groups of people, I think we all agree that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And so when you and I do things that are wrong, as we all do, you are going to hear from God and you're going to hear from the accuser. And the voice of God is very different from the voice of the accuser. And the problem for some of us here today, we hear the voice of Satan and we think we're hearing the voice of God. Here is how Satan will talk to you when you do wrong. He will accuse you of doing wrong and he will bring guilt into your life. When God talks to you about what you do that's wrong, God always works in the realm of conviction. Now that's a term that we might not use a whole lot, but if you think about the etymology of that word, it means to convince. So imagine arrows, if you will, please, with being confronted by whatever we do that's wrong. Arrows that are pointing from Satan and arrows that are pointing from God. Whenever Satan deals with guilt in your life, the arrow always points down or away from God. Satan will say to you, you failed again. God, will, God doesn't want anything to do with you. And so he will, he will show you an arrow, so to speak, that points away from God. You might as well give up. You might as well quit. You're never going to be successful as a God follower. God, on the other hand, when he points out things that we do wrong, the arrow is always pointing toward him. The arrow is always saying, come to me. Maybe this will help. On the night that Jesus was arrested, two of his disciples betrayed him. Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and Peter cursed and swore and said he didn't know Jesus. But look at how the two of them reacted. Judas reacted with guilt. Peter responded with conviction. Judas, when he realized what he had done to Jesus, the arrow pointed him away from God. He took a rope, put it around his neck, and hung himself. And that was the end of Judas. Peter, on the other hand, when he was confronted with what he had done, he went and cried and repented of his sins. And a few days later, he preached the greatest message ever preached in history by anyone outside of Jesus Christ. It's the difference between guilt and conviction. You beginning to feel what I'm talking about already? You and I need to understand that distinction. Satan will point out things that are wrong in our, in our lives, but he will do so by trying to create guilt, and that's not the wish of God at all. What Satan wants to do, though, is he wants to take a bad day in your life and turn you into a complete casualty, 
And here's how he does it. He shows us what we do that's wrong, and he makes us feel guilt for that if he can. And then he will say, and this is huge, if I could preach one message to 2018 America from this series, it would be this one. Because when Satan shows us what we do is wrong, he will say, this is who you are. You know, it's funny, when you listen to the conversation, even in, in, in the culture today, you hear that tension between people knowing that they've done wrong, and yet they will often say, this is not who I am. I, I brought this message twice last night, went and sat down in my office and opened up my phone and started looking at news items, and, and I'm not going to call this lady's name because I don't want to bring shame into her life, but evidently she's a public figure, and she, she wrote some tweets, and they're not appropriate. And at first she said she was hacked, but then there was no evidence of her being hacked, but this is what stood out to me. She said, I don't think I wrote these tweets because that's not the person I am. You know what she's saying? She's, she's going right to the heart of what we're talking about today because on one hand, we do stuff that's wrong and yet we look at it and we say, that's not who I am. And there's truth to that because if you think about the things that you've done on your worst day, they weren't the things that you wanted to do. They're not the essence of your character, but what Satan loves to do is he loves to lock down and seal the deal and make you, if he can, a permanent casualty by saying, yeah, you did wrong, and what's more, this is who you are. Now, at the moment that he can convince us that we are what we do wrong, humans tend to react in one of three ways. The first way is to react with despair, which is to say, I guess it is who I am, and I don't guess I'll ever change. You know, Satan will take the things that you do wrong, whether, whether it's lust, he will look at you and call you names. If, it's, if you tell something it isn't true, he will call you a liar. If you, if you fail in some way, he will call you a failure. Whatever it is that you struggle with, Satan will love to tell you that it is who you are, and if you are a person of integrity, the normal response to that would be despair, which is to say, well, it was wrong, and I guess it is who I am, and I don't guess I'll ever be able to change. The second response is to react with resentment. I mean, let me just be honest with you today. If I had, let's just say I had stage four lung cancer, which I hope I don't, and I've never been a smoker, but let's say I smoke three packs a day, and I've smoked three packs a day, now I have stage four cancer, how am I gonna to react to a lecture on not smoking in order to avoid cancer? I'm not gonna sign up for that because where I am in life, that message just makes me feel, it, it makes me feel worse. And so I push back against that with resentment. So the first response is to respond by, by dejection and a sense of despair that I don't guess I can ever be anything else. The second way to respond is to respond with resentment. I don't, I don't want to hear that stuff. And the third way is very popular in America today, and that's denial. If, if, if you say I do wrong and it is who I am, then maybe it's not wrong because after all, how can who I am how can, I be, how can I be someone who does things that are wrong? So consequently, it must not be wrong anymore. And wow, we're watching that grow pervasive in our culture today. All kinds of things that people, you know, people do, God has said they're wrong. But in our culture today, well, I guess they're not wrong because I do them. That's my identity. It's who I am, so therefore it can't be wrong. 
But if 61 years of living and 40 years of pastoring has taught me anything, it's taught me that uh, sin doesn't end well. And you know, just because we deny it doesn't make, doesn't make it not sin. You know, you can take the label off a bottle of poison, it'll kill you just as fast. So that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to make you a casualty. He wants to point out what you've done wrong. He wants to accuse you. He wants to do it in a, in a climate of guilt, so much so that he can sneer at you and say, hey, I've got you forever because this is who you are. One of my problems with the 21st century church in America is it's in many cases almost that we've reduced Christianity to self-help. So many of the books I read, the sermons I hear, so much of the conversation I hear in modern-day Christianity seems to be messages on self-help. And real quickly, I want to let you know, I respect that. And I, I mean, honestly, we all want to live better lives, and there are a lot of things in the Bible that are, that are smart, and they will make your life better, and I teach those things. But do we understand that never in the Bible has the gospel been about God accepting you because you improved your life. Wow. I would just, I'd get that tattooed on me if I knew where to go. Nowhere in the Bible is the gospel, God will accept you if you improve. Do we know that? Here's what the Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Sometimes I wonder do we know what we're being offered? I mean, have we ever stopped to think about what we're being offered? I, th I think a lot of people sign up for Christianity. It's like, well, I'm, I'm struggling in my life and, and I want to live a better life, so I'm going to go listen to Mark and maybe Mark will give us something or I'll go listen to someone else or I'll read this book and I'll listen to this broadcast or, or go to this Bible study and, and I'm going I'm I'm to improve my life. Have you ever heard, have you ever thought about the claims, the statements, the promises that come from the man hanging on the cross? I mean, he has said, if you come to me, you won't just be an improved person, you will be a different person. You will be a new person. The old life is gone. You have a new identity. No wonder Jesus called it the new birth. Do you, do you realize what you're being offered? Satan does. He knows, and, and he wants to swindle you out of this marvelous gift that God has for you. Well, for just a few moments today, I want to take you to my favorite Bible story. And it's in John's Gospel, chapter 4. And we're going to look at the story. We're just going to walk through the story of a woman who felt like her life was over. And she had probably good reason to feel that way. And no doubt, Satan had looked at her and said, this is who you are. But, well, let's look at this. This is in John, chapter 4, in the third verse. The Bible says that Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, here's the thing. That's pregnant with a lot of meaning. Now, just to get this in your mind, Jesus is in Judea. He needs to go to Galilee. In the middle is Samaria. For those of you who want to see this, just imagine that, I mean, Judea is the great place. It's the Holy Land. It is where Jerusalem is. Imagine that Judea is Texas. <laughs> Galilee is up north. That's Kansas. Jesus, like me 33 years ago, needs to leave Texas and go to Galilee, to Kansas. In between is Oklahoma. <laughs> or Samaria. Now, good Jewish people did not go through Samaria. 
They avoided Samaria. They went around Samaria. As Stephen told me at breakfast a few years ago, they just went through Arkansas. (laughs) Now, there were racial and religious reasons why the people in Judea did not go to Samaria. There was historical stuff. You know, there tends to be historical stuff in racism. And in this particular case, it all came down to when the people of God went into captivity. The, the, the northern part, Samaria, went into captivity in 722 B.C. The, the southern area, Judea, went into captivity, well, starting in 586 B.C. And the, the two peoples, when they were captured, they did something very different. The people in the northern kingdom intermarried with their captors while the people in Judea did not. And it became, it became a stone in the shoe of the people in Judea for centuries. I mean, it was really terrible, the racism, the prejudice that exist, existed. The, the people from Judea called the Samaritans dogs, and that was not a term of endearment. And, and they called them worse. And if, if a Samaritan was walking down the same side of the street with a Jewish person, oftentimes the Jewish person would walk to the other side of the street to keep their feet from being defiled. There's just long-standing religious and, and racial situations. So when Jesus said to his disciples, hey, we're going to Galilee, i got to go through Samaria, they were like, what in the world? But they didn't say anything to him. But you and I need to understand that there is a person there Jesus wants to see. So we read about her, and this is in John 4, verse 6, about noontime, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, that's, that may not sound odd to you and me, but it was very odd in those days because Primarily, the women went to get water, and they would go either early in the morning or late in the evening when it was cool, and it was also a social time. They would talk. They would share stories. It was just a time of community. The one thing that no, nobody would do is go to the well at noon because it was the heat of the day, and a person would have to go by themselves, but this woman goes to the well at noon. As we begin to unpack her story, we find out why she goes to the well at noon. She doesn't want to be around the other women because this woman has had so many heartbreaks and made so many bad decisions in life. Well, for one thing, she wouldn't want to be with the other women because she knows when they get together and talk, they may be talking about her. Married five times, divorced five times, sleeping with a man who won't even give her his name. You guys know I have a vivid imagination. (laughs) When I read these stories in the Bible, I try to put myself back in time and think about, not, not, not just hear the story and, and get to a bottom line, I want to think about how the story evolved. I mean, married five times, divorced five times, what were her five weddings like? I'm guessing that they were different. And as those weddings became different, she began to be looked at differently by the other people in the community. You know, the first wedding, it was all about hopes and dreams. She, she found the man that she loved, the love of her life. I mean, they, they just couldn't keep their hands off each other. They couldn't keep their eyes off each other. They, they were in love, and they were, they were going to have a wedding. And in those days, they didn't just have a reception that lasted a few hours. They had receptions that lasted seven days. It was a huge event. Man, she picked out the perfect wedding dress. They had the orchestra there. They had it catered. There was all the food there. And, you know, I mean, they really celebrated the wedding. I mean, they were like going all out. They went on a two-week cruise after the wedding. It was just this magnificent event because it was true love. But it blew up. Have you discovered that when you make mistakes in life that people tend to stamp you? I'm sure that people of the town looked at her and they said, okay, 
It happens. Happens in the best of families. Divorces happen in the best of families. I mean, her friend said it was his fault. His friend said it was her fault. But people looked at her and they said, well, this is, it happens. It happens. I wonder about her second wedding. No wedding dress, bought a new dress, new purse, new shoes, new outfit. They didn't have it in a church, but they rented a banquet hall. Friends got together. They threw a big party. I mean, they didn't, they didn't go on a two-week cruise this time. They just went to Kansas City for a couple of days. Didn't work out. People of town sized her up. And they said, it's unfortunate. She's got bad luck. Third wedding. Third wedding. I mean, you know, she didn't even, she didn't buy a new dress for that. I mean, you know, it's just sort of like a quick weekend off to Vegas. The guy who married him looked like Elvis. He said he loved her. But of course, it blew up, didn't work, and people of the town sized her up, and they said, man, you know, we gave her the benefit of the doubt at first, but something's wrong with her. Man, three times. She's a three-time loser. <clears throat> she doesn't have the benefit of the doubt anymore. Fourth time, didn't even change clothes. Nobody even talking about love, just stopped by the justice of the peace on the way home from work. And people sized her up, and they looked at her, and they said, Loser. That's who she is. Four times. Loser. Fifth time, doesn't even remember. At a bar last night. <laughs> Woke up the next morning. Didn't know who he was. Didn't know his name, but saw a wedding license there on the table. I guess she's married. Of course, it didn't work. And the people sized her up and said, throw away. And now, she's trading herself for just the basic necessities of life, throw away. <laughs> you guys know I'm kind of weird as a pastor. You know the song that's running through my head right now? The Green Day song, Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Because when I look at those lyrics, I think, wow, I walk a lonely road, the only one that I've ever known, don't know where it goes, but it's only me and I walk alone. I walk this empty street on the Boulevard of Broken Dreams where the city sleeps, and I'm the only one, and I walk alone. My shadow's the only one that walks beside me. My shallow heart's the only thing that's beating. Sometimes I wish someone out there would find me. Till then, I walk alone. Boy, if there ever was anybody who walked the boulevard of broken dreams, it's this woman going out to the well at noontime trying to avoid everybody else. Because Satan has told her, this is who you are. What you've done is who you are. You're a throwaway. You're not good for anything but just to be used. I don't know who I'm talking to, South Auditorium, North Auditorium, online, on television. I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I'm talking to somebody, and Satan has taken the things that you've done and made you feel guilty, and instead of drawing you to God like God would do, he's made you feel like not only have you failed and you're guilty, this is who you are. You're a throwaway. Well, day after day, she had made that trek out to the well at lunchtime, but this time something's different. As she gets closer to the well, she spots a solitary figure there. And as she gets closer, she sees he's a man. And from the way he's dressed, he's Jewish. You ever, you ever like get on an elevator and like it's kind of uncomfortable, it's just you and somebody else on an elevator, and, they're, and you're like, I don't want to look at this person, so you both look up at the numbers, you know, like, like the other person's not there. Man, this woman's going to elevator this thing. There's a guy there, she's just going to get her water, get out of there. But while she's going through the motions of dropping her 
water vessel into the well to get water. All of a sudden, the guy speaks. This is beautiful. When you hear the statement of Jesus, you're going to discover that Jesus is trying to build a bridge to her. What's a bridge? A bridge exists because there are gaps, right? You don't, you don't need a bridge if there's no gap. You can lay a road. But if there's a gap, the problem is you can't get to the people on the other side, the people on the other side can't get to you, so somebody's got to build a bridge. Well, I don't know a whole lot about construction in that regard, but let me ask you a question. If there's going to be a bridge across the lake, do you put the bridge across the widest expanse? No. You find the closest point. I may be talking to some, this is not my talk here today, but there could be a gap in your life. There could be a gap between a husband and wife. There could be a gap between parents and kids. You know, somebody's got to want a bridge. Somebody's got to say, it's important for me to get to you and you to get to me. So find, you find the closest point. You don't, you don't go, to, go home today and talk to your wife and you say, you know what? We need to talk about all the things that separate us and then build a bridge. No. What do you have in common? Well, what did she come for? Water. So what does Jesus do? I mean, think about this. I mean, yeah, there's a wide chasm between these two people. Jesus is God. He's the son of God. She's been married five times. She's sleeping with a man, no telling how many times she'd done that, but she's sleeping with a man who wouldn't give her his name. I mean, there's a whole lot of difference between these two people. But what does Jesus do? He goes to the point in which they're closest. And he says, could I have a drink? I love her response. The woman was surprised. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? I mean, in, in effect, just to put you back in the place in time, she was basically trying to protect Jesus from himself. She's like, sir, didn't your mama teach you anything? You're a man, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk to each other. Didn't, didn't anybody teach you the proprieties? Well, if I like her response, I love Jesus' response. And if you miss this, you may miss this whole story. Look at this. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Wow, this is big. If you were like an interviewer and you could have caught this woman on the way out to the well that day and you were there with your camera crew and you interviewed her and said, hi, I'm from this media outlet and, and I'd like to just interview a little bit and I've heard that you've been married five times and you're sleeping with a man who's not your husband. What, what is your problem? You know what she would tell you? I can't pick guys. I can't pick men. I listen to them. I think they love me. I date them. I, think, I, I take them at their word, but I just can't pick guys. She would have said, that's my problem. What's your problem? You've got one, at least, I do. You know what it is? We think that's our problem. Because we bought into this lie, we are what we do. And so consequently, what, what is her problem? She's a loser. Why is she a loser? Because she can't pick guys. I love how that Jesus zeroes in on what her real problem is. Jesus said, I can give you a life. Her problem was she didn't have a life. 
I mean, she's her, she thinks she's finished. She's marking time until she goes to the grave. She has no life. Jesus said to her, I know you got a lot of other issues, but your problem is you don't have a life. And if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I could give you a life. Living water. Well, she still doesn't get it. She said, sir, you don't have a, a rope or a bucket and this well's deep. And then she's still kind of like fuzzy on this thing because he said he can give her living water. She won't get thirsty anymore. She said, give me this water. Well, by this point, Jesus has crossed the bridge that he's built. And so he begins to zero in on her life. And so he says, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Well, that was perfectly innocuous. All kinds of things could be inferred by that. I don't have a husband. I've never been married. I don't have a husband. My husband died, you know. All kinds of things. There's no reason to hang her dirty laundry out in front of this stranger. I don't have a husband. Boom. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. You're not even married to the man that you're with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Okay. Is Jesus shaming her? No. I mean, Satan was already doing that. Why should she go into the well at noontime? Because she's already shamed. Number two... There's no help for any of us until we get honest about our lives. Oh, but this is so beautiful. I wish I knew how to preach. Work. Work with me. You, you've been with me up till now in this narrative. Does Jesus know that she's had five husbands and was sleeping with a man who wasn't her husband? Yeah, he knew that from the beginning. It's why he went to Samaria. What did he do right before this? He offered her a gift. Take a deep breath. Hold on to something solid. Are you ready for this? Jesus said, I know who you are, and I still have a gift for you. Wow. So many of us push back against God because we feel like if we ever were to come into contact with a holy God, he'd hate us. Do you hear Jesus saying to you today, I know who you are. I know everything you've done. That's what he said to her. I know who you are and I still have a gift for you. I know who you are and I still love you. I know what you've done, but I love you anyway. I have a life. I want to give you a life. I, I, I'm not giving you self-help or improvement. Jesus is saying, I understand your quintessential issues that you don't have a life and I want to give you one and to know who you are and I still have a gift for you. So he wasn't shaming her at all by asking her where her husband was. Well, <laughs> the woman kind of goes sideways at this moment. And I've been in this conversation too. And she's trying to sort of like move out of the conversation. So it's sort of like, well, you want to talk about religion. She says, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why do you Jews insist that Jerusalem's the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's in Mount Gerizim? So since you're starting to talk about religion, I can talk religion too. And Jesus blew that up, and he said, I didn't come to talk to you about religion. God is looking for you. And then, oh, I hope God kept this on video, because I want to see it when I get to heaven. The woman said, I, I know that Messiah is coming. I heard about that in Sunday school when I was a kid. I know that this Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Here's what I want to see on videotape. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you're talking to him. Talk about cool. Jesus said, you're talking to him. 
Well, right about that time, verse 27, the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Shocked. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, okay, ready for this? Verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What is missing from that statement? She didn't say to the people of town, come see a man who told me what I was. She's got it, hasn't she? She didn't say, come see a man who told me I was a slut. She said, come see a man who told me the things I've done. And she said, could this be the Christ? Satan wants to convince you that you are what you do. And he hopes that you will respond in such a way that you'll be a permanent casualty. That you'll either respond with despair and give up and quit trying, or that you'll respond in resentment and push God away, or that you'll respond in denial and say, there's nothing wrong about the way I choose to live my life. Any one of those three, he can rack you up, put you on his wall. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying, I know what you've done, but you're not who, what you've done. And beyond that, I can make you a different person. I can give you a life. The deal is this, we're all in the same category. In Romans chapter 3, in the 23rd verse, the Bible says, all have come short of the glory of God. Chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right by God's sight, by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Look at this. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. I have done sins, and I still sin, but who I am is a friend of God. Jesus made me God's friend when he gave me a life. All right, we have a few minutes left. What do we draw from this? First, the first thing is we're reminded not to judge. Now, you know, today... It's a strange, do you feel what I feel in American culture today? It's like we say we don't judge, and yet we're the most judgmental culture, I think, in the history of the world. It's like if you're doing something that I think is okay, then I'm not going to judge. But if you're doing something I don't think is okay, then we're going to pile on you like a mob of mad dogs. We're fuzzy on this. People do things that are wrong, and it's like, well, I don't judge. On the other hand, it's like we, we identify people as losers What does it mean not to judge? It doesn't mean that if I'm doing wrong, you can't tell me I'm doing wrong. That's not judging. See, judging is not about knowing the difference between right and wrong. There are people today who say, I don't judge, so basically I don't draw any distinctions between right and wrong. Hey, if a person truly doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, they're qualified to be criminally insane. Because that is the textbook definition of being Insane in a criminal sense, not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Judging is when we begin to identify somebody by what they've done. The, uh, the great preacher Spurgeon, who preached 150 years ago, he talked about parents burying their kids alive. He didn't mean literally, he just meant giving up on their kids because they were going through a difficult season. 
And for all of us here today, it's important to remember that God is not finished with all of us yet. So it's not time to judge. You know, I've, I've learned this the hard way because oftentimes there are people I've given up on that I found out later God didn't give up on. His name was Richard. I grew up with him. I led him to Christ when I was 12 and he was 11. He prayed to receive Christ. And for a few years, you know, 12, 13, so, 14, he was very engaged and he loved God and wanted to learn about God. And it was really impressive just to watch him grow spiritually. But when we both got into high school, Richard started hanging with the wrong crowd. Next thing I know, he's drinking too much. He's taking substances. He's being with the wrong crowd. And he just really hit the wall. And he got completely out of church and didn't have any interest in God during that season. I was in college and I went off to Houston to serve a church there. But when I came back to my home church for several years to serve on that staff, I determined that I was going to go after Richard and try to, try to bring him back. And I think I went to see Richard at least once every two weeks. And when I would go to see him, I would say, Richard, I would just love to see you come back to being in a close relationship with God. And he would say things to me like, yeah, I know I need to do that someday. And then he'd try to like, Shift the conversation to small talk. I moved here to be at New Spring, first week of June, 33 years ago. And that last week when I was in Texas, I, I decided that I was going to see people I really need to see. Because I didn't know if I, I mean, I, I figured when I came up here, this is where God wanted me to be. So I didn't know if I was really going to have much chance to go back and talk to these people. So I had kind of a punch list of people I wanted to see the last week before I left to come up here. We moved up here on a Friday. So the previous Tuesday night, I determined I was going to go see Richard. Richard lived in a ramshackle house in North Fort Worth. I mean, you look at it, you don't even know how it's standing up. The porch around the front was up on concrete blocks. It was a aging house, probably 100 years old. Horrible looking place. No windows, no doors. Richard came out to see me. He was shirtless and shoeless. He was drunk, had a can of beer in his hand, and, and he'd drunk too much. He was, he was really drunk. And something went really strange that night. I just said, Richard, this, this may be the last time I get a chance to talk to you. I just want to talk to you tonight about coming back to God. And, and he said, hey, why don't you leave me alone? I'm, I'm never going to change. Why do you waste your time on me? And then he did something I don't think anybody's ever done, especially not a good friend. He laughed at me. He laughed at me for coming to see him. I got in my car and I said, that's it. That's it. Moved to Kansas a few days later and honestly just gave up on him. About 20 years later, I'm in my office on a Sunday afternoon, late, and I get an email. I have no idea. I guess he just emailed me through the church site as I think back on it. I get an email from Richard. And he said, hey, Mark, I've been catching your sermons online, really enjoying them. He said, I just kind of want to catch you up on my life. He said, I had a lot of bad years, but I met a gal and, and she was a Christ follower, and she was in church, so I, I started going to church with her, and just little by little, I, I, I fully came back to God, and he said, my church has a jail ministry here, and he said, I started going with one of the pastors to the jails to witness to people who were in jail like I used to be from time to time, and he said, it wasn't long before they asked me to preach, and he said, just wanted to let you know, I'd just been preaching all afternoon in the jails. It could be that you've given up on somebody and 
you said, well, I guess they are what they do. Maybe it's your wife or your husband. It could be one of your kids. Maybe there's somebody you haven't even talked to in a long time because you've given up on them. Don't bury them alive. I'm talking to someone here, and you are a Jesus follower. There was a time, maybe years ago, when you invited Jesus Christ into your life, but you've been down some bad roads since then, and you've done some things that are really shameful, and the enemy, the, the devil, has come to you and said, you never really were a God follower. You know, you are what you do. I mean, it's like Bill, Bill Parcells used to say, you are what your record is. Well, I don't know about football, but I know this. I know Satan will come along, and he'll say, you are what you do, and here you are, God follower, but now Satan will say, you never were a God follower. You just were deluded. Jesus would say to you, you're not what you've done. I gave you a life. Come back to that life. I don't have time to read this verse, but there's a verse I was going to share with you where the Bible says, take off the old life and put on the new life. I mean, it's not that you have to become a different person. God is just saying, look, you're wearing the clothes from your old life. Take those off and put on the clothing of being a Christ follower. Come back home today. You're not what you've done. Yes, you did it. But God is not saying you did it so you should feel guilt and that's who you are. God is saying you did wrong, but come home. Come home. I know I must have said this to you a thousand times in the last 33 years. You know what I love best about God? He's the only one who'll let you start over. Isn't it true that even the people who love you the most can't forget the things that you've done wrong? But God is the only one who will truly let you start fresh. In the book of Lamentations, it says, his mercies are new every morning. Every morning when you get up, it's a fresh new start with God. So yeah, maybe you've been down some bad road and some bad stuff has gone down in your life, but that is not who you are. If you've invited Jesus Christ to come into your life, you can go to God today and say, God, I bring all this dysfunction and all this wrong and all this stupid stuff. I'm bringing it to you today. The blood that came out of your body was a currency that paid for my sins, and I claim it today, and I I'm coming home, and I'm starting today new and fresh. You are not what you've done. You're God's child. Or it could be you would just say, Mark, I'm like that woman in the story. I mean, maybe I haven't made the same mistakes she's made, but man, this thing about having a life, sign me up. Well, it's not a matter of signing up. It's, it's a matter of a gift that God wants to give you. And the Bible says, ask. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. You say, well, Mark, I'm not sure I can live it, but can you accept a gift? I'm not sure I can live it. I can't go 30 minutes without doing something wrong. I didn't ask you, could you live it? I'm asking, can you receive a gift? Jesus died to buy it. A gift of being forever forgiven. A gift of having eternal life. A gift of a relationship. We hate religion at New Spring. Religion is all about jumping through hoops. I don't mean I hate the people in religion, just hate the systems. It's not about jumping through hoops, it's about a relationship. A vibrant, living, organic relationship. And if you're here today, no matter what you've done, you can invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life. I want to give you a chance. Would you just all bow your heads with me, please? Both auditoriums. And say, Mark, I'm ready for that gift. Well, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'll pray it slowly, line by line. You can decide if you want to own it and say it to God. 
The important thing is he, he hears you. You ready? Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've done many things wrong. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. I received your gift. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hang tight with me. If you just prayed that prayer, I have a gift I want to give you. You can go to any info center all around the campus, and all you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. And nobody will hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number, anything like that. We have a gift bag. It's got a Bible just like I preached from, a New Spring Bible, a book I wrote, and just some really helpful information to answer questions that you might have. So please, all you got to do, just go by and say, I pray with Mark. Thanks for being here this morning. We'll see you next weekend.